Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. Uh, this time, not in my tiny cramped office but live in the Bethel University Library. Um, if you're here joining us, could you please just give a quick shout? Hi, hey, everybody. Hi. Famous. <laughs> What's that? That's our proof that it's live. That's proof that's live, proof, proof of life. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm Chris Moore, assistant or associate professor of political science. I'm Andy Bramson, assistant professor of political science. And I'm Mitchell Crum, also an assistant professor of political science. And I'm Sam Mulberry from the History Department, and my job is mostly to hit record. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Sam keeps us honest. Uh, a couple announcements as we get started here. Um, uh, we do have a very nice, uh, we're very thankful for this audience that's come to participate with us today. They are submitting questions live in real time, and Sam is our gatekeeper for those. He's reviewing some of those, and he's going to throw them at us in a little bit later on today. Uh, before we get started, too, though, um, if you have questions, you can always send them to us. Uh, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And we'll take some questions there, questions we don't get to today. Uh, we will also address in future podcasts. Also, uh, the, uh, um, we are uh, looking forward to, in conjunction with Bethel University Student Life and the Political Science Department's Honorary Pi Sigma Alpha and a few other players, uh, we're looking at uh, getting an election night party going. So that'll, uh, more announcements on that as it comes forward. But we're going to be doing something prob probably live again on election night. Um, do either celebrate or commiserate and maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> also, if you'd help us uh, f uh, 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 tweak the algorithm on iTunes, we'd love it if you could rate us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating, if you would, please, and review <laughs> us. Uh, that helps other people find us, uh, so let's mess with their algorithm. Uh, thank you all for those announcements. All right, gentlemen, news of the day. What are you watching right now? Uh, this morning I saw that there are uh, new revelations that Trump uh, used his charity to basically fund various uh, enterprises in his business. So apparently he was fined uh, over 150 grand and actually used the Trump Foundation uh, to write that check. So that just broke this morning. The Washington Post sent that out. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I guess I was looking at the most recent uh, police shooting in Tulsa and kind of wondering how that's going to play out in the um, political race. I have not seen what either Trump or Hillary has said in terms of reacting to that. But it's going to certainly keep this narrative of um, this kind of injustice uh, at the forefront of the discussion. Do you think it's going to come up at the debates? It, it could. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know. It's will will the debate moderators want to bring that up with <laughs> with them? I don't know. And it, it's a tough issue too because it's a it, it does get. I mean, like, what what can a presidential candidate and what can a president ultimately really do about this? Um, because you really are talking about local law enforcement, right? And so the president actually has limited power. I mean, as our current president has discovered in trying to, you know, in watching this unfold, but finding himself really rather limited in terms of his, his ability to impact it. We, uh, we often have a president who serves, we've, we've, uh, Teddy Roosevelt famously talked about the bully pulpit, but we often have a president who serves as a moral leader-in-chief for the country, uh, with two presidential candidates as deeply unpopular as Clinton and Trump are, even as they're running for president. Um, that might be a role that they have sort of limited interest in pursuing at this point, or, or limited ability to access. Um, Agreed. 
I'm, uh, I, I wanted to talk about uh, Lester Holt, who's going to be the moderator for the first debate. We're, we're less than a week away for the first debate. By the looks on your faces, I can tell you're excited. Um, um, and uh, it's going to be next Monday. Uh, he's announced his topics. The topics, are, there's three topics. They are exceedingly vague. Um, they are making America prosperous, making America secure, and, um, oh, they really are so stultifying, I've forgotten the third one. Making America um, great again, perhaps? No, I don't think so. That's <laughs> a little close to one candidate. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see where they go with this, but it doesn't seem likely they're going to bring up sort of law enforcement issues and specifically uh, uh, police shootings as a result of those three topics. Um, other news this week, the one that struck me, um, President Obama, or excuse me, uh, President Obama, according to Donald Trump, is in fact born in the United States. Yes. This After is exciting news. For five years, his, his, his research has concluded, <laughs> um, and we've, we've, we're, it's confirmed he's, he's been born here. So. Yeah, and Hillary started this story. Really. That's now the so spin of the Trump the campaign. Is the Trump he's campaign just resolving an issue that the Clinton campaign so, brought up in so. 2008. So, <laughs> so, so what, it, what's, is the, I always like to ask you guys questions about kind of the strategy of um, why come up with that now? Mm -hmm. um, Good question. Why come out with that now? <laughs> You're asking us to plumb the mind of Trump. Yeah, abs no, absolutely, though. I, you know, because, like, 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 what is the, um, is there something advantageous about this particular timing? Or you guys seem to be implying it's random, but I'm presuming it's not. I think, oh, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think one of the, one of the reasons that Trump uh, has to, uh, essentially to bring this up now is there's nothing to lose. I mean, at this point, um, it's not, it's no longer about President Obama, and so he may as well say that. And once again, you know, by saying it, he put himself in the news. And so, mm -hmm. you know, this is constantly a game for him of how can he once again grab the headlines. And just as basically Hillary Clinton is coming back um, uh, on the campaign trail, he's trying to once again uh, draw the narrative back to himself, and he's successfully done that. And I think it also, I, I agree with that, and I think it also kind of clears the deck of an issue that maybe he doesn't want to talk about too much anymore. So you kind of you know, make yourself look as good as possible. Um, that whatever you know, falsehoods were there, you at least are trying to you know, share them with Hillary Clinton. Um, this is really her fault. She started the story. I was just trying to resolve it. And then he can kind of move on to issues that he thinks are probably more advantageous. So I think insofar as there's a, a strategic element, that's kind of how I see it. Is, your sense, is your sense that that will be effective, that we will just, he says that, so then we move on? Or you think this is going to linger? or? I think it had to be done. I think he had to do this mm -hmm. to kind of clear the ground, if only for internal Republican Party cohesiveness, uh, to get uh, otherwise moderate uh, party leader types, um, uh, Paul Ryan's, and, uh, to be more comfortable campaigning for him, endorsing him. He had to get rid of this sort of the, the, the birther connection thing. Um, will it be brought back up? Um, he did an odd thing by trying to tie Hillary Clinton to this to this longstanding uh, rumor he's been pursuing. And doesn't that then make the story go long. I mean, if, if the if the yeah. idea is to get to sort of put this in the past, doesn't that also then push it forward? I mean, a different way, but I think so. I, I think that was an odd move on his part. Yeah, yeah. and his surrogates, I mean, had trouble kind of defending his position. I mean, even his campaign manager went on and they sort of, you know, the, I forget which journalist was interviewing her, but it was the journalist was trying to push her on this, and and you know, they were like, well, isn't this a problem? That he's telling you the story that's been sort of repeatedly debunked that this really is has its roots in Hillary Clinton, and you know, finally she just was like, well, you'll have to ask him, right? I mean, like, like basically, I don't want to defend this this position anymore. So yeah, it may it may not work to go away. Um, on the other hand, I mean, this feels like a really dead, tired issue. I mean, we're talking about 
the, the citizenship of the person who's been president for the last seven years and eight months, right? I mean, like, I think most of us have kind of moved on from that issue. So, you know, I don't know how much life you can get out of it before he has to move on anyway. And that way he's kind of cleared the decks. He just says, you know what, I've admitted he's a citizen. Let's not talk about this. And so it, it gets hard to push it too far, but we'll see. All right. Well, one of the reasons we've gathered today is to talk specifically about um, the role of our faith and uh, our participation in politics. Uh, this is an interesting election for people of faith. Uh, those of you listening online, Bethel uh, uh, University is an uh, evangelical institution, um, um, and uh, we take our faith and the integration of faith and scholarship around here very seriously. Um, these are two candidates that have uh, not inspired the evangelical community. Um, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton um, uh, um, hails from the Methodist faith, um, but holds policy positions that over the last four decades or so have been um, uh, off-putting to evangelicals. Donald Trump um, has not had much of a faith background in his life, uh, but has recently, according to uh, some evangelical leaders like James Dobson, uh, become a baby Christian, which uh, so we should talk about what that means too. Uh, but um, how do Christians, and in particular, how do evangelicals integrate faith into their political lives? Well, I'll, I'll kind of lead off thinking about this and so um, and give a shameless plug at the same time. So on Thursday night, uh, if you want to hear a lot more about this topic, about sort of how, why and how we as Christians should engage politics, I'm part of a roundtable discussion at Church of the Cross over in Hopkins, Minnesota, so feel free to, to join us there. It's from 7 to 9 p.m., um, so if you're in the cities, please do join us if you want. Um, but one of the things I'll be talking about is sort of this issue of why we should engage and what that should look like for us. And I think one, one way I think about our engagement, obviously as a political scientist, I do think we ought to be engaged in politics. Um, so I'll sort of put that out there to start with. But I think, uh, you know, our engagement as Christians should look different, right? And so we shouldn't play by the same um, rules of the game that others play by. And so what I mean by that it's is... It's a higher it, standard. It's a higher standard, right? I think we should think about things like... I mean, you know, when we when we are relating to government, right? Um, we think about sort of the scriptures that tell us submit to government's authority just as you submit to God's authority. And what does that mean for us, right? And what does that mean when the government isn't particularly good, right? And when we disagree with its policies, and and how should it play in that? You know, when Paul writes those words to the Romans, right, in Romans 13, he's telling this to people who are under the government of Nero, which was a really unfriendly government, right? I mean, we might have some disagreements with um, Barack Obama's administration or Mark Dayton's administration, but they're not burning Christians in their gardens, right? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be said for, for these administrations compared to the one um, that Paul's writing under, right? And so, so what does it mean to submit to that authority? And then also thinking about sort of our role in the political sphere. I mean, one thing I always think of is as we seek peace in this earthly city, right, to use Augustine's terms, um, you know, we should always be pointing people to a, the greater peace, right? And so saying, you know what, yes, we're trying to seek um, to make our society better, but ultimately we want to point people to the reality um, that they're supposed to have this right relationship with Christ. And that's the, the greater peace we should be pointing to. And so as we do all that, I guess the, the biggest sort of takeaway I have in terms of thinking about our, our politics and how we should engage it is that we, we have to be held to a higher standard, right? We have to think about the fact that although these ends we are seeking are worthwhile, we can't use any means to get there, right? And so when you look at sort of political leaders, people get frustrated by it. It's just sort of like you do whatever you have to do to accomplish your goals. And I think as Christians, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard and say, you know what, um, what kind of means are appropriate uh, for me as a Christian to engage in? What, which ones are not? Um, and to, to reflect deeply on that. So what, uh, when I was thinking about how uh, 
what I was going to say here. One of the things that comes frequently when I think about why I study politics and why I think about uh, political science is because I care about uh, truth. And, you know, as Christians, a lot of times we, we say, well, we have the truth. We want to think about truth. Uh, but one of the areas where truth so easily and so often gets lost is in politics itself. I mean, as we see in the campaign season here, we once again have lots of accusations and also lots of pretty, um, pre pre pretty sure cases of people not telling the truth. And so one of the things that I want to... Yeah, That's very charitable, just, Mitchell. Very okay, charitable. We, we have some obvious lies. We'll just call a spade a spade. Um, but I think in politics, especially when the stakes are so high and you have so much power um, involved, that's usually uh, where, where, where people are led. And in fact, if you read some of the ancients, you know, even Plato himself said, you know, sometimes that's actually good. You need people in power to be willing to lie if it's for good ends. You know, you need the noble lie. But I think as Christians, we need to come at this from a different perspective. We need to say that, no, truth always matters. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think political science is so important is because we are con part of what I see our vocation is doing is constantly trying to say, how can we understand the truth about what's happening despite the fact that we have power, despite the, f we, the fact that we have so much uh, incentive to be deceptive, despite the fact that a lot of people want to deceive? How can we somehow still penetrate to get to the truth? And I think that's in many ways what... If you read, if, if, if we look at the Bible, that's in many ways what Christians and what uh, disciples of Jesus are constantly trying to do. Even in the Old Testament, you know, we think about the prophets and what the prophetic role was. The prophets weren't there um, most of the time telling, foretelling the future. Most of the time what they were doing is they were saying, this is the truth. They were telling the present. <laughs> they were telling the present. They were saying, this is the truth about the situation right now. You have these problems. You want to deny that you have these problems. You want to you know, look in these other directions, but this is where things are right now. And I think in some ways, you know, obviously we're not prophetic in that sense, but in many ways we want to carry forward and say, how can we tell the truth right now? And I think that's, uh, it, 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 for us as Christians, that should be one of our main goals. And I think that's, in, in some ways, just to sort of bring it back to the present, why this current election is so troubling. We have a lot of people who seem to be willing to justify um, and to equivocate on a lot of things that have to do with the truth um, when it comes to politics in the name of forwarding Christian interests. And I think what we need to do as Christians is we need to be very careful that what we are focused on is the truth and that we want to forward and that we only want to speak the truth even when those don't necessarily forward our ends and our goals. I'll just add one little thing there to that. I think that's really uh, very well put, Mitchell. And what I would add too is we always have to think about in terms of our identity. What, what is our identity, right? Um, and it's easy for us to think about our identity as Americans or our, our identity as Republicans or Democrats, right? Um, and, and those are not unimportant, right? And I'm not knocking those identities, but we have to always remember that our primary identity must be found in Christ. And so anytime we find ourselves um, sacrificing our identity in Christ for the sake of some earthly political goal, um, it's fair to say we've gotten off where we should be, right? And we need to get back and reorient ourselves um, to remember our primary identity is in Christ and the other things need to be subjugated to that, um, not the other way around. And so to Mitchell's point, I think too often what we see is that people sort of forget that in the heat of political battle um, and they, they get their identities out of order as Christians. Well, let me ask you, uh, two gentlemen, and then Sam, too, perhaps, the hard question here, which is, uh, Andy, you talked about uh, Christians sort of uh, being subject to a higher standard in their political participation. And Mitch, you talked about uh, Christian pursuit of the truth. Is there ever a point at which we say that the, the nature of the political discourse is so fallacious and so misrepresentative that Christians must accept themselves out of it? Uh, is there, are, we, are we approaching a standard by which Christians say that we ought not participate in the political process? 
I wouldn't go that far. Um, I wouldn't say you sort of completely recuse yourself, but I think it might change the nature of your participation. What, what kinds of forms of participation are appropriate? What forms are just going to fundamentally compromise you? And so I think, I mean, to the point about the, you know, our identity being found in Christ, right, we have to think about sort of that's got to be primary. And so any, any kind of participation that would sacrifice that, then I think we do need to step back and say we well, can't do that. Um, I, I tend to think in our system, most of the time, you can engage on those terms or, you know, and, and say, you know what, here's my primary identity. I'm still going to engage. On the other hand, will that make you less effective in some instances? And the answer is probably yes. I mean, um, the reality, you know, so the, the passage our pastor preached on on Sunday was the parable of the unjust steward. And, you know, the idea that this, the, the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the sons of light. And there's a real sense in which that's true, right? I mean, um, that this does disadvantage us, right? We can't say um, false things about people when we engage in politics. And sometimes false things work, right? Um, so I think that we can still engage. But understand, you may be sacrificing efficacy for the sake of, of truth and in a following Christ. And, and I, and I would argue you should. You should sacrifice efficacy in those instances. If you're following Christ. Right, absolutely. Yeah. If I could just sort of uh, follow up on that. I mean, one of the things that I think oftentimes we look back on the presidency of Jimmy Carter as being a failure. But I think one of the reasons that we think of him as a failure is because he told the truth as he saw it. You know, you look at Jimmy Carter, and he actually looked out, and he said, you know, there's a lot of problems. You know, you sort of watch him as he goes through his his uh, presidency, mm -hmm. and he sort of gets more and more weathered and sort of torn down with the burdens of what's going on around him and all the problems in world office. And I think part of what made him ineffective was in, was the fact that he uh, actually told the truth. And I think that was part of his, you know, agree or disagree with his policies. I think that in that sense was sort of his Christian uh, faith coming through, that he felt like he needed to be honest and he needed to say uh, what he felt as he saw them. I think I'll add just as a coda to this conversation, I'm going to transition to a, another component of it. Um, we know that different, uh, 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 different parts of Christendom approach political engagement in different ways. And one of the reasons I asked the two of you about uh, whether you thought it was appropriate or there ever might be a time that Christians would accept themselves in the political process is we do have Christians who intentionally accept themselves in the political process. Sure. Uh, Anabaptists avoid political participation for the very reasons that we're talking about here, that the, the corruptive nature of the power of the system of the world is itself problematic. Um, and, but, we have, but most other denominations, most Christendom, finds a justification or a, or a means or a methodology by which we engage in politics, whether it's uh, Catholic social theory or whether it's uh, Luther's two kingdoms or, or sort of a fused paradox um, or whether it's uh, um, the idea of, of, of common and specialized, special grace out of the Reformed tradition. I wish our colleague was here. We could talk about that. Um, and, uh, uh, or, or others, uh, different, different denominations find justifications and means and methodologies by which we engage in politics. And evangelicalism is part of that as well, although it's seen its own transition. Uh, if we were having this conversation back in the 50s, um, we wouldn't be podcasting it, first of all. Uh, but also, um, evangelicals would be very, very skeptical of political participation. Mm -hmm. And by the 80s, uh, with the rise of the moral majority, and uh, in the 90s with the Christian coalition, and now uh, evangelicals are very politically engaged and very politically tied to one side of the political spectrum. Um, and I think that's a, that's a transition and something that we should grapple with and not just assume. Mm -hmm. Let me talk about, let me ask you, gentlemen. Um, so we talked about truth, pursuing truth. But how about grace? Uh, how, uh, how ought Christians be civil in the political discourse? Uh, we, we, have a, we've, we feel like civility is a call of ours, but is there justification for it and are there limits to it? So uh, when, we, when we think about civility, I think there are sort of two sides to this. Um, on, on the one hand, you know, when you th uh, civility uh, is, is important because 
well, on the one hand, on the one hand, civility can be defined as simply politeness. In other words, we want to be sort of engage in whatever norms are in our culture about being nice to each other and sort of even uh, Minnesota nice. Maybe right. even Minnesota nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm a newcomer here, but this is yeah. So anyway, so so, so on the one hand, I we have might a hot think dish of for it, you. We'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Anyway, so we so we might think of it as just in just in terms of being nice. But part of the problem uh, that that we run into is those definitions sort of vary as far as what we think. Um, politeness means. And so what, what I usually think of, or what I want to think of when I think of civility is, is uh, what does it mean to, uh, you know, as Christians especially, what does it mean to love the other person? How can I uh, speak in such a way that will reach them, that will be effectual to them, that will not be harmful to them in that way? And I think, you know, if we read, especially, you know, like Paul in Ephesians, he says, you know, we need to, you know, how can, how can we speak the truth essentially without being, without, without engaging in wrath, without having bitterness, without having... Um, you know, in sort of general terms, that's more the aim of civility. It's not necessarily just being nice. It's how can I do this in love? Because it might mean saying uncomfortable things. You know, I think right. Nathan, when he went to David, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was civil, you know, when, when he went to David. But he was telling him, uh, you've done something really, really wrong. And mm-hmm. so I think, I think that's an example of civility. And I think that cuts to the other side. And there are, you know, where civility runs up against limits where we might think of, and maybe this is not limits, maybe it's just another part of the definition, but we also need to be thinking about, you know, civility can't stop you from speaking what is true. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, essentially if, you know, sometimes I think what politicians object to, and I think we're seeing this, uh, you know, as we go into this campaign is they say, well, I don't want to talk about that. How dare you bring up this thing or that (laughs) thing? You know, you're being uncivil by bringing Mm -hmm. this aspect of, of my past or something like that into politics, when in fact that's simply part of your record. That's simply part of the truth. That's not uncivil to bring that in. That's just what's there, just like Nathan coming to David. Right, and I would, I think that's, um, I, I totally agree with that, and we add a couple things. I mean, one is, um, so this, all, all this discussion makes me think a little bit of one of our Bethel buzzwords, right, which is this idea that we should have an irenic spirit, right? And for um, those of which, you who are yeah. not part of our, our yeah. body here, we mean irenic with an E, not ironic with an O. Right, that's a key <laughs> distinction. And by irenic, and I have to confess, and I hope this doesn't harm me with um, any of my colleagues in the, in the audience here, but... I have to confess, before I got a job at Bethel, I didn't actually know the word irenic. But after I got here, I learned that <laughs> word. Um, it's a really important word. And it turns out it means something along the lines of uh, disagreeing without being disagreeable, right? And so being able to have those hard conversations, being able to talk about truths that are sometimes uncomfortable, as Mitchell put it, um, while at the same time, right, still saying, you know what, we have a relationship and we can talk about these things and we can end up on different sides and we can still be good friends and colleagues, right? Um, and followers of Christ. And so I think that that's a, sort of an important way for us as, as Christians um, to think about the way we engage. The other thing I would say to this issue of the, sort of the balance between truth and grace is I've just been teaching uh, Plato's Republic in my humanities class. And in, in the Republic, one of the challenges, they sort of wrestle with the idea of uh, what constitutes justice, right? Um, you know, there's this idea that maybe justice is just the advantage of the stronger. Justice is just a farce, right? There's no really such thing. Um, and, and Socrates, Plato Socrates, pushes back against this and says, you know, um, that there, he thinks there is a real core to the idea of justice, right? And when Thrasymachus is arguing, you know, injustice is better, it's, you know, it's going to be more successful, he says, but how do you make justice, right? Uh, how do you make someone just? You can't make them just through injustice, right? That is a sort of contradiction. So if we think about sort of how we f- pursue a better society, 
um, politically, right, in this country, uh, we're not going to get there by unjust means, right? We're not going to get there by sort of, you know, sort of taking injustice and using that to try to achieve justice. That is almost always going to be a sort of contradictory um, project, right? Two so, wrongs don't make um, a right. Two wrongs don't make a right, and when you sort of build things on these sort of unjust premises, then it's usually going to end up in injustice. So, um, so again, just a little insight from Plato there. Uh, the only thing I'll add, I, gentlemen, is that um, oftentimes when, uh, when we talk about civility in public life in the United States, we tend to have sort of a, um, a view of civility which is first do no harm. As long as I don't offend someone else, as long as I don't cause them grievance, as long as I'm nice to them, I, I've done my job in terms of being civil. But I would actually argue that if, if Andy talked earlier about being held to a higher standard, Christians have a role of, for civility that goes beyond merely being nice. Uh, or merely not causing offense, but in some ways building the dialogue. Um, I've been reading some philosophers recently who argued that the, the key fundamental notion of democracy is that the dialogue doesn't stop, the conversation doesn't end, the debate can continue. And if that's the case, then I think Christians have a uh, call to act in such a way as to allow the conversation to continue, to, to foster and encourage the debate. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think we've, we're taking civility beyond merely being nice and being openly and intentionally engaging with, with uh, alternative points of view. All right. Um, I have nothing to say about civility. <laughs> <laughs> you have some things to say about incivility? That's right. Okay, all right. Well, That's for um, a different show. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening to us on, on uh, talking about civility and faith and politics. Uh, what we'd like to do now is turn to some questions from the audience, and Sam's been assiduously collecting questions here. If you have other questions, we'd like to submit those to us. We'll take a few more at this time. Again, if we don't get to all of these, uh, we will... Um, uh, we'll be addressing those in future podcasts as well. And I'll say this is the most fun part for me because this is normally on the podcast. I get to be the one who um, just gets all of my questions answered. And these are uh, pretty interesting guys to answer questions or to ask questions to. So um, I'm going to start with a couple questions about the debates. Okay. Um, so the first comes from John in Arden Hills, Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> a lot of these are local questions. <laughs> Weird. Uh, so, so I'm going to read two questions here uh, attached to the debate. So first, uh, do you believe that Gary Johnson should be able to debate? Uh, how is it? Um, how does it affect current candidates poll that his polling uh, might be higher than other third parties have? And then secondly. Um, do presidential debates make a significant difference in the outcome of elections? What does history suggest? So some general questions about debating. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, there's, there's, I, I just want to note that there is sort of a should in the, in the first part there. So it's should, should Gary Johnson uh, be, allowed, be allowed to debate? And there, there are a number of different ways we might approach uh, that, that sort of a should. Um, on the one hand... We're going to hold you down, should he? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the one hand, we could say, you know, does he meet sort of the standards that have been set by the Election Commission? And obviously the answer is no. He hasn't reached the 15% um, average polling threshold um, to be in there. I don't think that's really what the question is. <laughs> so the question is, what does, if, if, I, if I can sort of speculate, the question is more along the lines of, uh, what, wh what does it mean for democracy um, uh, in, and, and, for, and for voting, the fact that he's not included? And in that case, I think it depends on what you want the debates to be. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, the debates could be a situation where only, you know, where, where basically you're only seeing presented the two candidates who have a reasonable chance of winning. 
And for you know, there's there there uh, you know, I don't want to get into why that's the case, but there really are only two candidates who have a reasonable chance of winning, and it's Trump and Hillary. And so, if you want to have the debate that is purely there to help people make their decision on how they're going to vote based on these two candidates, one of whom will be president, um, barring something really significant. Um, <coughs> Then, then, then in that case, no. Um, you know, Johnson has no realistic chance of winning, and so he shouldn't be included because the debate should be about um, you know, who is actually going to be president. On the other hand, if you take another sort of view of democracy and you say, well, what these debates are really about is not really choosing who you're going to vote for. It's about sort of airing different views on policies, and we should have more perspectives and you know, sort of to get you know, sort of use – I've been talking about this stuff recently, so this is on my mind. You know, if you sort of use Aristotle's metaphor of the, of the, of the potluck, right, where you have more – the more you know, everybody who brings different dishes, you know, and so you want more – the more you have, the better meal you're going to have. Than a, you know, than, uh, and, so, and so if you have that sort of view, then yes, we should have Gary Johnson. We should probably have Jill Stein and maybe uh, even some others, right? We should maybe get six or seven because there's probably lots of different views. But then that's going to sort of raise the question of where do you, where do you cut it off? Like how many views um, should be out there and should be spoken um, in a presidential debate? I presume the NCAA selection committee. Would right. So, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Maybe we're going to have, you know, yeah. So, 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 so in that case, you know, I think that sort of gets to the problem. What do you, th- what do you think the debates are supposed to be? If they're supposed to present lots of different views, then yes, he should be included. Um, and I'll just say, you know, since you said you wanted to pin me down at the end, I don't think that's what the debates are about. I think they're about the first thing. I think they're about who are you going to vote for? And in that case, I think, no, uh, it should just be the two candidates who have a reasonable chance of winning, which is Trump and Hillary. And to the other part of John's question, I mean, how does, how does Gary Johnson impact this race? Because that's the other piece I sort of heard in there. And I, I do think, I mean, he potentially, and he and both he and Jill Stein and possibly even other candidates, um, you know, could have a real impact on this race. One of the interesting things that we've talked about on this podcast before is that, you know, we have two candidates with historically high negatives. I mean, people really don't like either of these candidates very much, right? And so, um, you know, people, it's, what's interesting, like, as Hillary's numbers have kind of dropped in the last week, or a couple weeks, rather, uh, one of the reasons that's happened is because the attention has been focused on her, and people are reminded we don't really like Hillary Clinton all that much, right? And during parts of the race when the attention is focused on Donald Trump, people are reminded we don't really like Donald Trump all that much, right? So it kind of seems to depend on whoever they're focusing on, they're reminded of how much they don't really like that person. Um, so, so all that to say, like, there's a lot of people who have deep sort of reservations about both of these candidates in a way that really hasn't been true um, in, you know, other elections I've observed in my lifetime, right? So... Uh, so that makes an, for an opening, I think, for people like Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, because there's, it seems like there are some voters who are saying, you know what, I just find both of these candidates utterly unacceptable, so therefore I'm going to go vote uh, for one of these people. So having them in the debates, I mean, arguably would probably drive up those numbers. Um, but as Mitchell points out, I mean, like, it just doesn't seem to be any realistic chance that even if they, you include them, and even if they drive up those numbers, that they can get over sort of the huge advantage the Republicans and Democrats have in this country. So I think, you know, in that sense, it makes sense to exclude them. Um, sticking on the, the uh, theme of third party, we have two other questions about third party candidates. Um, one of them is from Zach, and he is clearly a listener to the show because he's referencing something from a previous right. episode. Zach, I'm so Woo-hoo. sorry. He says, on a previous episode, uh, Dr. Bramson mentioned that Gary Johnson oh. has run a pretty disappointing campaign. Why is this, and what should he have done differently? And then another question um, from Lorna. Do you think it's wise to vote for a third-party candidate in this election? Hmm. Well, since, I, since Zach is responding to me, I guess I'll lead off here. Um, so Gary Johnson's run a disappointing campaign. What did I mean by that when I said that in the previous 
uh, podcast. I think what I was really getting at there is that I do see an opportunity for third-party candidate in this race in a way that I've never seen um, again in my in my lifetime. Right, um, because the two candidates, the two major party candidates, are viewed so negatively. This feels like if there was ever a chance for a third-party candidate to get out there, catch fire, um, and really draw a lot of people behind his or her banner, right? this is that election. And Gary Johnson, on paper, looks like the kind of person who could do that. I mean, he's a two-term former governor of a swing state. right? He's a Republican who holds, um, I mean, background is Republican, um, who holds pretty liberal views on a number of issues. right? He feels like the kind of person who could draw people behind him and get quite a number of votes. And I think he will get a significant number of votes, but I don't think he's going to get anywhere close enough to, to threaten. And I think part of the reason is Johnson's just read kind of a clumsy campaign. He's not that inspiring as a speaker. Um, he's said some things that have really hurt him. Um, he seems inconsistent. He's a libertarian who doesn't seem consistently libertarian, um, which, again, in, in a race when you're, you know, people are getting bashed all the time for being inconsistent on this or that or not telling the truth on this or that um, also seems to hurt him. So. I feel like if he had more charisma, he might have actually gotten this done. But he's just, when you listen to him, he's just not all that inspiring. Um, so I do think that this is, in that sense, a kind of a, a, a dropped opportunity. Um, I could have imagined that being different. Is so. he going to do well enough in certain key states that he might swing the election? Um, places like Ohio and Florida, uh, Pennsylvania, perhaps? It could happen. I mean, I, I'm not convinced by any of the state polls I've seen so far that he's actually changing right now that he's changing the result. Um, he's maybe, you know, he's certainly driving down the percentage that the major party candidates get, but I'm not sure he's actually, you know, taking enough from one camp or the other to swing a state from Trump to Hillary or vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, it, it could happen, but I'm not convinced on that point at this point. I want to address the, just briefly, the moral question. Um, is it ever, is it a good idea to vote? Uh, for a third-party candidate. And there's an argument for and, and an argument against, and I wouldn't be a good academic if I didn't give you both. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the argument against voting for a third-party candidate is basically what Andy just said. It's incredibly unlikely that a third-party candidate would win. So you have an obligation to vote for the best possible candidate out of the two candidates that are most likely to win. And that is your, that's your duty. Is to, or to, if you prefer the more negative version of that, you have an obligation to vote against the person who would be the worst for the job. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but that might not sit well with you. And you might think, well, no, actually what I need to do is I need to represent with my vote the person who I think is best qualified for this job. And that might be a third-party candidate. And even if that means that that person has no hope of winning, I need to signal uh, my favor towards them with my vote. And I think that's the argument in favor of voting for a third-party candidate. Mm -hmm. Agreed. This, uh, this question comes from Caitlin. I think this is a really interesting question. Um, what is the significance, if any, of the fact that we call Trump by his last name and Hillary by her first. <laughs> well, this is partly, I mean, partly something Hillary herself has done because, I mean, of course, in case you didn't realize, um, she used to be our first lady, uh, right? So um, her husband was president. And so you know, I think there's the sense of which she wants to establish her own identity. Um, and so to me, that's part of why she's chosen uh, to go that route is to sort of not be too Clinton. Also, I mean, Hillary Clinton, interestingly enough, was not always known as Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, so um, I'm just old enough to remember um, that, you know, this was an issue in the 1992 uh, race, right, where, um, you know, she would, she'd gone by her maiden name of Rodham, and, 
as they as Bill Clinton ran for president, she sort of transitioned to using um, her married name more. But you know that wasn't always the case, right? So I think that sort of Hillary is sort of that that compromise in that sense. So she kind of does go with that. What's interesting about that is, I mean, Trump himself has sometimes you know gone by the Donald, right? So I mean, like you know, so we could have certainly called him by his first name too. On the other hand, I mean, the Trump he, he branding tends to, he is tends very, to put his last name yeah. in very large letters on very large buildings. He does. So it's hard to avoid it. I mean, I was in Chicago this summer and walked by the the Trump building. It is really, really a large you know, Trump, right? So he, um, yeah, he likes to use that. So so I think that's why we've gone that way. But it's you know it's interesting. Um, here's an international relations question, Chris. Okay. You're, our, you're our IR guy. Uh, based on on international relations, if Trump becomes president and continues his erratic and immature ways, which country <laughs> would he, would we be at most risk uh, in terms of conflict? Um, based on sort of his lack of tact and a filter? <laughs> that's a, that's, this is the, the question. I'm sure. Not, that's know, a very even-handed question. Just reading um, what it says. I, well, I, have, I have good news and, and bad news. The good news is uh, very rarely do countries insult each other into wars. Um, uh, although, recently, uh, President Obama declined to meet with the Philippine president because the Philippine president uh, referred to President Obama as a son of a whore. Um, uh, he also referred to the Pope by the same, using the same term in Filipino. So he's a he's a pretty earthy guy. Um, I'll leave it at that. But so we so we canceled a, a diplomatic visit. But that's a long way between canceling a diplomatic visit and, and firing off some rockets. And um, I think it's unlikely that we would enter into a military conflict simply over purely erratic behavior. But I think uh, what it could do is it could it could harm alliances. Um, mm -hmm. It could and it could and it could. Um, Motivate other other allies too, or other other. I'm sorry, other uh, adversaries in the international sphere. Um, if if adversaries think that Trump is erratic, uh, it might push them to take less risks. Uh, Richard Nixon famously propagated this idea of a madman theory that if the president seemed a little unbalanced and a little shaky, that might make our enemies conservative and cautious because they didn't know how we'd lash out at them. Uh, in contrast, Trump is portrayed himself to be relatively isolationist, especially compared to Hillary Clinton, that he might mm -hmm. be less willing to use force abroad than Clinton is. In that way, America might be less uh, prone to use its military. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in our last episode, we talked a little bit about the qualifications for, for being president and how it's a pretty lean job description uh, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so Joe asks, uh, it's not really an issue in this election since uh, Cruz lost in the primaries, but when should the Supreme Court rule on the constitutional definition of naturalized citizen? I remember asking you about natural this. Natural born early. citizen. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, natural born citizen. Yeah. When should the Supreme Court rule? Yes. Well, or, I mean, well, I guess I guess the question is is um, should that be defined further? Is there a need for that to be defined further? Because that was clearly in the primaries. That was clearly a question that was being asked. I. I, well, I I'm going to punt a little bit and see what you guys think. But I, my, my quick response would be, I would love to see us rule on that before we have a candidate who fits that role. You know, we, Before Arnold Schwarzenegger runs for president, I would like to get this issue figured out. Because what we don't want is to have a very viable, very popular candidate who's not a natural-born or not a native-born U.S. citizen who wants to become president. That's a bad time to make that kind of ruling. But what, should this be something the Supreme Court rules on? Uh, I don't know that I have. I don't know that I have a strong, strong position on that one way or the other. Part of the part of the problem, I think, part of the reason that the court uh, hasn't ruled on this is because 
it, it is, well, part of it is, you know, the Supreme Court almost needs a case, right? right. If you're going right. to have a yeah. rule on it, you know, you exactly. actually have to have, um, you know, you, it, a case actually has, you know, otherwise the case is moot, right? Mm -hmm. So, so to, to avoid mootness, you actually need um, a candidate. And I think that's actually the main reason the court hasn't done it is because Arnold Schwarzenegger hasn't run f uh, for president. Um, uh, you know, it hasn't actually been something that they that they've had to rule on. Um, in many ways, maybe maybe you know whatever else you think of the Cruz campaign, maybe that would have been a case where the, the, the that would have allowed the, the court to actually rule on this. Um, but until then, I don't think I don't think we're going to see it. Yeah, I agree. They, can, they can't really handle hypotheticals, and they they tended to. I mean, or, or the sort of you know legal system more broadly has tended to interpret it pretty generously. So I mean, this was an issue with John McCain, right? Who was actually not born on U.S. soil; he was born down in Panama. Um, and so they've tended to interpret it. You know, if if there's reasonable case to be made for them, be, this person being a natural born citizen, so at least one American parent, uh, born on American soil, and so forth. Um, then even they if that, so, that soil is the Panama Canal, so. right? Well, as long as you have American parent, right? I mean, sure. like that's the, the issue with like a Schwarzenegger would be that he wasn't born in the United States, naturalized and, US and has no American yeah. parent. So that's a pretty, I think yeah. that, that would probably be pretty open and shut. But but with most of the others, if, if there's some case for the person being um, natural born, they've tended to define it that way. Um, and so I mean, I think for the record, like you know, calling Cruz or Obama or McCain, um, you know, America, you know, natural born American citizens is pretty clearly the right call. Okay, our next question uh, comes from Jolene. Why are people so heavily focused on the general elections, national elections, when local politics has a major influence on the daily lives of individuals? Uh, I think I think this is actually in many ways often a problem. Um, you know, usually we we uh, I think I think the reason we do it is two reasons. Number one, uh, at least for the for the news media, it's easy. Right. Um, if you look at the if you look at national politics, it's very easy to cover national politics because you essentially have you know one president and then you have you know 535 members of Congress and then you've got the Supreme Court and it's pretty easy to actually get people to go around and follow um, what's going on in those institutions. I mean, some of it's difficult, but particularly the presidency, right? It's basically, a reality show. Exactly. Yeah, you basically right. just assign somebody to sit on the plane and follow them around, and that's and that's basically what that is. Um, I think when it comes to local politics, that's when it gets much more difficult, once you get down to the state and local level, um, because there's so much variation. There's lots of different issues. There's lots of different um, you know, kinds of cases. And I think also, and this is where sort of the problem enters in, people mistakenly think oftentimes that it's boring. Um, you know, you look at sort of the cases, uh, you know, at our at our local levels, and it's like, okay, a highway through this place, or should we allow um, X business to be built um, in the downtown, mm -hmm. or something like that? And on the surface, that looks kind of, uh, you know, kind of kind of boring compared to, uh, you know, kind of the question Are we you had earlier. on zoning committee meetings? Well, yeah, I mean, compared <laughs> compared to like, you know, is 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 uh, our our uh, Trump's insults going to get us into a war with Russia or something Fair like point, that? Right. You know, um, so uh, you know, uh, so on the one hand, it looks like that, but the problem is, and this is where it's not boring, is that oftentimes those local things impact us a whole lot more. I mean, the fact is that whether there's a highway that tears through, you know, some local park or something like that, is actually going to have an appreciable impact on your life, whereas, mm -hmm. you know. Trump talking to foreign leaders, yes or no, you know, probably isn't going to really uh, impact you know you even ten years down the line here. Right. So we're uh, we're almost uh, close to the end here. So I guess I'm going to ask one last question for you, kind of in uh, in lightning round fashion. Um, lightning round. As Ooh. we're as we're preparing to watch the debates, what are each of you looking for specifically? I'm looking to see, I mean, how this is going to be uh, framed. So the biggest thing about the debates is not really what, it's, what is said during the debates, but how it gets interpreted by the media and how successful the candidates 
um, you know, sort of team is at selling their version of the debate, right? I think the bar is going to be set very, very low for Trump, which is to say that if he shows up and doesn't say anything really crazy, um, it's going to be called a win for him. Um, I think for Hillary, one of the things that's going to be hard for her is, is making sure that she's not interpreted as being shrill during the debates. Um, and fairly or unfairly, that's what she's often um, labeled as, right? And so I think for her, that's going to be key is, you know, coming out with a tone that feels presidential. And again, I think there's probably a lot of gender stuff going on in there that we could talk about. Um, but I think that's what they're going to they're gonna look at is those kind of things. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be looking for is how, how, how well the moderators are going to be able to uh, pin, <laughs> pin Trump down on specific policy proposals. So we've seen a number of, uh, you know, what he's described as softening or, you know, sort of uh, movement on his, on, on his campaign in terms of specific policies. And so it'll be interesting to see if he can, uh, if the moderators especially, can actually manage to, to get him to commit to certain, to certain policy positions. I think, uh, I agree with both, both the gentlemen here. Uh, I think that um, the moderators will play an, unlarg an unusually large role in this set of debates. Uh, Lester Holt's the first moderator. Um, Matt Lauer was widely pilloried uh, last week for doing what was widely believed to be a terrible job interviewing uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Let's see how Lester Holt does. He's going to need to be firm and, and he's going to pursue questions with these candidates. And I also, um, you know, I look, look for uh, how these two candidates try to communicate with each other. Um, both, neither one of these candidates particularly likes to go back and forth in terms mm -hmm. of debates. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see if either one of them tries to engage the other directly rather than just giving like a dueling banjos joint televised press conference. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I think we're at our time here. Our students need to go to class, and we need to go teach them. So on behalf of my colleagues, I'm Chris Moore. Thank you for joining us for Lection Shock Therapy, and go Royals.